Hey everyone, it's Marquita Harris, Working Money Editor for Essence, and welcome to Unbossed, a podcast for entrepreneurs, self-starters, and women who are about their business. On today's show, my guest is Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, Democratic Representative from the state of Massachusetts. Let me rewind that back, y'all. Ayanna Presley is the first woman of color to be elected to Congress in Massachusetts. Emphasis on the first woman of color. See, that's one of the many reasons why voting matters, y'all. Cough, cough, November 3rd. Anyway, if you know anything about Ayanna, you know that she's a powerful, unapologetic force to be reckoned with in politics. I learned in our interview, and you'll soon hear, that this path has been a part of her journey from a young age. Even before she became class president numerous times in high school and junior high, this woman has always understood the power of speaking up. You could say she was born for this. And though she's had to battle countless obstacles, some ongoing, one thing is clear. Ayana's vision moves in only one direction, and that's forward. She and I had the opportunity to chat about the many milestones that have shaped her into the unstoppable servant of the people that she is today. Or, as Ayana simply puts it, her daily fight to keep our democracy together. For the superheroes known as Black women, Beats like this are all in a day's work. All right, let's get into this interview with Congresswoman Presley. I'm here with the unstoppable, magnanimous Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. How are you, ma'am? I'm doing fantastic. It's good to be with you. I'm so excited. I've been, um, as we were discussing this a little offline, I have been so excited to talk to you, to have you all to myself for this little window of time, because I know you're busy. You have an election <laughs> coming up soon. Um, well, that's not all. I'm trying, to take, <laughs> I'm trying to take for Black America and keep our democracy together. But, you know, all in a day's work for Black women. That's so. right. That's right. You're, <laughs> you're, I, you're a real life superhero to me. <laughs> so, <laughs> so. To start things off, um, I like to ask everyone this question when they come on. Tell me about your very first, first, first job, the first paycheck you ever got. Okay. Uh, you said paycheck, not my yeah. first job. Okay. Right. The, first, the first paid experience, we can say that. So, okay, Notwithstanding babysitting, my okay. first job was at Foot Locker. Okay. And this was where? Uh, I was raised in Chicago, so mm-hmm. my first job was at Foot Locker, and, um, you know, I, I didn't last very long because my, my boyfriend was often sending his friends there for for a hookup, uh-huh. and so I wasn't there too long. <laughs> Got it. Okay. I did have high sales. Yeah, okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Was, but, um, Did you, when you were in that job, was there ever a moment where you kind of said, you know what, either A, this isn't for me or B, actually, I like what this is. I like talking to people. I like doing these things. Oh, well, I mean, I was like 16. I mean, you know, here's the thing is that this is actually one of the reasons why I, um, two things, why early on, um, as in my freshman tenure as a member of Congress have really prioritized um, paying interns a living wage because yes. 
Um, you know, I was an unpaid intern in uh, when I was 19, working three paid jobs to do that unpaid internship. Mm. Um, and then um, secondarily, I, I, my very first amendment introduced into Congress was to lower the voting age to 16. Now, why is that? Because most of the 16-year-olds I know are like how I grew up which Mm -hmm. is that they were already being saddled with adult responsibilities. I wasn't working to build a resume or for an enrichment experience. I was working because I needed to contribute to my household. Yeah. So that experience at at Foot Locker, I think, um, you know, I I like hard work. I like people. um, And I think that I was, you know, uh, you know, good at what I did and had high sales and all of that. But I knew that that was really just a, um, a stop off, if you will, on the way to something else. I mean, you have to understand, I grew up in a a very unconventional household with a mother who would read me bedtime stories that were the speeches of Barbara Jordan and Shirley Chisholm. My first first coloring book was, um, I remember it very distinctly. It was produced by the Chicago Defender, the Black uh, newspaper uh, of Chicago. And it was a I was learning my colors by learning uh, the meaning and the colors of the black liberation flag. Yes. And I used to go to school in my church suit with fake pearls trying to mimic uh, Shirley Chisholm. So, you know, Foot Locker and anything that I did uh, in between was just a means to an end. But I needed to work to contribute to um, our household. My mother was raising me alone under a lot of destabilizing variables. Um, But it's those experiences that have shaped me as a woman and as yeah. a lawmaker that I bring with me into yeah. every policy and decision-making ma- table. I love that. Um, speaking of the things that you were doing in between, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, you have a long history, even dating back to middle school of being involved in politics. So yeah. I want to know, was becoming a member of Congress, like, was that always a part of your career plan or what did you want to be? Well, Again, you know, my mother being the most formidable influence in my life, may she rest in peace and power. Um, I wanted to to do my part as a justice seeker, um, as someone committed to the full emancipation and liberation of Black folks. And you might say, well, that sounds heavy, you know, for a child. But I remember being at the beauty salon on the north side of Chicago and sitting on top of a telephone book, holding my ear while my hair was being pressed. And, you know, one of the um, the other women in the, in the shop said that I always look so worried. And I was about eight. And she said, you know, why is this child, you know, it's typical for adults. They're speaking about you and not to you, right? Yeah, yeah. Why is that child always so worried? And I lifted my head, still holding my ear. And I said, she said, what are you worried about? And I said, the world. You know, when I was eight years old. I think some of that is like what my mother poured into me and her expectation. Yeah. also that I'm an Aquarius and an only child and we are, um, you know, humanitarians yep. and, yep. and things very seriously. So I had that. I was, you know, bookish and um, introspective, you know, very early on, I think in large part because I was an only child. Yeah. So I was voted in high school, most likely to be the mayor of Chicago. And I, and I was class president and I was student government president and, you know, I was one of the captains on my cheerleading squad and all of those things. I was a competitive debater. 
Yeah. So many of those sort of traditional conventional checkpoints that people would expect on the way to a career in community and public service. But those aren't the experiences that I carry with me in Congress. Yeah. You know, the other job that I held was that I worked in hospitality for six to eight years. Um, can you kind of just kind of briefly discuss what some of those experiences were? So I think a lot of, I think there's a lot of misconception about you being in the position of power that you in, you know, you're in now. And a lot of people don't quite understand that, you know, that role really does involve so many different skill sets. So of course, hospitality would be so beneficial and being able to really yeah. work with people. And, and there are many people in politics that come from a career in public service. I'm 46 years old. You know, I uh, worked for a member of Congress the very seat that I'm in now, I started it as an unpaid internship 25 plus years ago for that member, Congressman Joseph P. Kennedy II. Then I worked for United States Senator John Kerry for 11 years. Yeah. And then I was on the Boston City Council for eight years before running for Congress. So I appreciate the compliments where I often get wrapped into sort of a millennial uh, uprising and surge. But yeah. I my grind, on my grind and toiling in the vineyard of the work of social justice for a long time. But again, what I think has best prepared me and what qualifies me to do this work is that I was raised in a single parented household, um, that my father, um, in supporting uh, a, his disease, a substance use disorder, cycled in and out of the criminal legal system, yeah. um, that um, I'm a survivor of a, a decade of childhood sexual abuse and later uh, campus sexual assault um, is the fact that, you know, I live with uterine fibroids and the autoimmune disease of, of alopecia. Um, mm -hmm. And then I worked in hospital and I was a caregiver to my mother in the, the final throes of her leukemia battle. And that um, I worked in the hospitality in industry uh, as a waitress and in wait staff. And all of these situations have really shaped me and been the best qualifiers for what I do because I've been in proximity to hardship. Yes. And so I'm carrying those conflated experiences with me in every room I enter, um, at every table that I'm at. And it's why I've made a commitment to advocate for the ignored, left out, and left behind, particularly when I was working in waitstaff for those yes. six years because I know what it is for people to look over you and to look through you. Yeah. I know what it is for people to not value the dignity of your work. I'll never forget one time I was um, waitstaff for a black bankers convention. Okay. And I went to refill their bread basket. And as I was walking away, one of the black bankers said, it is a shame because people die so that she could aspire to be more. And I heard that and I came back to the table. And I said, begging your pardon, not that it matters or is any of your business because there's dignity in all work. I actually work for a United States congressman. You know, I'm 23 wow. years old and, I'm, and that the salary that I'm getting there is not enough because I'm also a provider for my, uh, my mother, you know, for my extended family. But I said, and yes. I, was, I take issue with your analysis. People die so that I would have a choice. And I right. to be here and there's dignity in all work. And so that experience is why the very first bill that I wrote within 14 days as a member of Congress was a workers' rights bill. Yeah. So all these things come together. It's, it's about my intersectionality 
Yes. Yes. Shout out to Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw. That's right. And also that's, I think, of course, that's why, that's why we love you. That's why we, you know, we, we just want to see so much, you know, change and you're so inspiring to so many of us at Essence in general. Um, But let's talk a little bit about legacy. Um, It's been a crazy year and I know uh, it's when things started out for you, what was that in 2019? It seems like it was a long time ago. Um, 2018. Yeah. 2018. Um, But let's discuss the last, the last couple of years. Um, Have you thought more about not just, of course, the work that you do the day to day, but uh, more about the whole, the legacy that you're creating and um, what do you want people to remember you by? And um, I just want to know a little bit more about that. Where's your mind at in terms of that? I don't think about that because I think, you know, those that make history don't seek to make it. Mm. I'm Mm. just head down, focused on the work. You know, my mother taught me early on, there's a difference in life between your job and your work. Your job is what you do to pay the bills and your work with a capital W is the work of the upliftment of community. And, you know, she told me early on, like, look, being black is a beautiful thing and you should be proud of that. But you are being born into a struggle and I expect you to to play your part in that struggle. And so, you know, my mother has blessed me with um, broad shoulders and a strong back. And, you know, I never could have foreseen won my election to Congress. I mean, I was very improbable, particularly in challenging um, a 16-year incumbent. Yes. And uh, there had never been a person of color, despite the progressive bona fides of Massachusetts, being a blue state and being a leader in um, marriage equality and healthcare reform and so many things, my journey was a very improbable one. And so those who have been elected, and decisively so, with a 17-point mandate, and then to go to Washington and be a part of a class that is historic in every way, the most diverse representative Congress in the history of Congress, more women serving than ever before. And when we were um, took our oath of office, we entered in the midst of a federal government shutdown. Yeah. A year from the date of our being in Congress, we were voting on articles of impeachment. Mm-hmm. Of course, I voted in the affirmative. Uh, we, weeks after that, I you know had was diagnosed with alopecia. And then weeks after that, we were fearful. We were on the precipice of another war. Um, And then weeks after that, we're in the midst of a pandemic. So, you know, these have been unprecedented circumstances in every way. And people always ask me, like, if I'm growing, if I'm weary, if I'm growing cynical or apathetic, apathetic. And my response is always the same. You know, I don't have the luxury. Yeah. We don't have the luxury. So as far as legacy, I think it's important to me that, um, I'm more than a first, okay. um, that I'm not the last, and that I have a long legislative uh, record because mm-hmm. the disproportionate hate, hurt, and harm that Black folks have experienced was not a naturally occurring event. These were legislated hurts. Yes. Yes. And so the path to equity and to justice and to healing is also through lawmaking. And so I'm very proud that I have introduced more bills than any other freshman member of Congress, because that's what I went to Washington to do. Systemic problems require systemic solutions. Um, Can you say that that receipt that you just said one more time for emphasis, 
That's amazing. Like you've passed that like more oh than anyone God. else. You're yeah. just, I, I love it because you're listing off these receipts. Of course, it's nothing. It's all in a day's work. That's, you well, know. It's, I'm, I'm but, very fortunate. Let me just say this. Yeah. Black Lives Matter, um, Black representation, Black power matters, Black data matters, right? And yes. Black staffers matter. Amen you know, to that. I, I, and just having that representation around me, um, my favorite Shirley Chisholm quote, and I have Ch- Shirley around me all the time, because um, y'all may not know this, but my office, the 11, 1108 Longworth, used to be her office. Wow. So, um, she had three offices physically when she was on the house side for those uh, eight years, I believe. And this was the first office she was in. And I occupy that same physical space. And my favorite quote of hers is that when she was asked about legacy, she said she wanted to be remembered simply as a black woman who dared to be herself. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so fortunate in that I have a mandate from the people in my district. I have the the grounding and the anchoring of my loving and supportive family and my husband, Conan, and our daughter, Cora, mm-hmm. and my abolitionist cat, Sojourner Truth, who we call Zosha, <laughs> but also in my staff and my team. And so they emboldened me to un- to unapologetically be authentically me. Yes. You know, it is not easy navigating the world as a truth teller, you know, mm-hmm. as a table shaker, as a black bald woman. Yeah. And so fortunately I have a team of diverse staff, including many black staffers who, who cover me, who guard me, who challenge me, who support me in this work. And so yes. they make those legislative victories possible. Yeah. You know, you said something earlier and it reminded me, um, you, you were discussing, of course, the impeachment proceedings. And um, I remembered that amazing video that you released earlier this year with The Root, where you, you know, you shared your story, your truth with the world about having alopecia and about how you had this major revelation the day before this major moment in, you know, with your job, so to speak. Yeah. Um, can you kind of, what advice do you have for Black women out there who, whether they're going through what you've been through or their own, you know, they're battling their own personal challenges to just show themselves authentically to the world? How do they, how do we do that? <laughs> I don't have the answer, sis. Because yeah. honestly, I don't think that I'm, you know, especially uh, brave or any more you know, bad and bold because I choose to not wear a wig than those that are living with alopecia who do wear units. For me, I think ultimately it's about authentically showing up for you and just knowing that I think we all have a responsibility to not only occupy space, but to create space for others. And Mm -hmm. you get to decide what that looks like for you. But I know for me as a black woman in politics, there's that everything I do is political. Yes. How I enter a room, how I sh- how I show up, how how I'm dressed, what I wrap these curves in, you know, right. everything is political. And so for me, it, there wasn't an option. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I tr- have tried to wear units and to do those things, I felt for me in costume, it did not feel comfortable. And so that is not to say that I don't have hard days because I do. I'm still coming to terms and to grips with all of this because it all happened so quickly. But, you know, my pastor said it just means that my territory has been enlarged. And I try to think about it in that way. And 
now be um, an advocate for the 7 million Americans that are living with alopecia, men, women, and children from every walk of life, disproportionately black women. But there's so much that needs to be done in the vein of research. And also um, this autoimmune disease is considered cosmetic. Yeah. It does not acknowledge the stigma, the discrimination, the trauma. And so to, to wear a wig, to purchase a wig is not covered by insurance because this is considered a cosmetic um, disease. Yes. And so that's one of the things that I'm looking to change right now, thanks to, you know, picking up the work of advocates who've been doing this for decades. I mean, originally, even with breast cancer, mm-hmm. when breast cancer survivors would uh, pursue um, reconstructive, reconstructive yeah. that was considered cosmetic. And actually, uh, Chairwoman Maxine Waters led the fight for that in California it changed there, and then that's what ultimately uh, resulted in a culture change and a, and, a, and a policy change. And I'm trying to do the same thing when it comes to alopecia. So, you know, I would just say, listen, get your squad. You know, get your squad that's going to pour into you, that's going to hold you down um, and pour into you. I have that, you know, not only on yes. Capitol Hill, but in my life. And that has been so critical. When I have forgotten who I am, I'm surrounded by people who remind me. And that has kept yes. insane, you know, in the midst of this. Yes, I love it. Um, have you ever wanted to quit? Sure. Yeah. How did, you, how did you work through that? God. You know, <laughs> if, it's not, if it's not obvious, given how um, verbose I am, I am the granddaughter of a Baptist preacher. Amen. And, I think people, um, you know, often like to give credit to my career in public service to the bona fides I earned and, the, and how I was cutting my teeth as an intern and as an aide, because I was an aide for 16 years um, before getting elected to the Boston City Council. But my leadership training began in church. Yeah. Um, and so that still continues to be my foundation. You know, I, I can't front. It was a little shook after my mother transitioned and she passed away. Mm. Um, because she was my world, you know, and remains the most formidable influence in my life. I hope every day I'm delivering a love letter to her in word and in deed. Um, but, but, but honestly, it, it was, it was grace. It, yeah. it was grace, the foundation of my faith and my husband who believes that this is actually my ministry. Um, mm-hmm. so when I wanted to be in a fetal, um, either because of vitriol online you know, we're not just because I'm grown doesn't mean I'm exempt from, uh, you know, being burdened by no, bullying and threats and things like that. Um, or, you know, being my alopecia diagnosis or losing my mother or just the, the how daunting the gravity of the challenges are that we're dealing with right now in the midst of a pandemic, an economic crisis and a national reckoning on racial injustice. You yes. know, it's, it's heavy. But I'm going to say this to everyone because I know we have to wrap soon. I think this is really important. I think as Black folks, we get so many directives and instructions about the armor that we need to put on to negotiate rooms, microaggressions, hostility, how to navigate the world. Everything is about the armor we need to put on. And I don't think we talk enough about joy. And Mm -hmm. joy is a necessary act of resistance. And so we have to be intentional about informing that joy preserving that joy. And that's something that I just really try to every day say, I'm going to do something intentional to inform 
my joy. And mm. it's not self-care so that I can do the work uh, recharge. Yeah. I think there's a problem with our defining our value by the utility just of our contribution. Ooh. You know, I, I, des- I deserve to have peace and to be whole because I deserve to have peace and to be whole. It's not so that I can go out there and be a more effective warrior. Yeah. And give it to someone else, <laughs> essentially. And give it to somebody else. Yeah. Ooh, that just, that was a word. <laughs> um, you know, this is how I think we have to look at it. It's yeah. like hold space for your righteous rage. You know, let's be radical and bold in the solutions that we organize for to address the many injustices that we've experienced. Okay. And then hold comparable space for your radical joy and healing. Your your words are they're sinking into me right now. And I'm just looking at you on this screen and just feeling this, you know, a lot of inspiration. Um, I got a couple a couple of questions for you. Um, this is a podcast also where we like to talk about money and okay. radical transparency around salaries. Mm-hmm. And what I want to know is in the course of your career, can you talk about, uh, was there ever a time where you felt just, you know, not internships and things like that aside, mm-hmm. just drastically underpaid? Um, and how did you work through that? Sure. Well, I mean, <laughs> this is embarrassing. Okay. But <laughs> I, I will say my very first paid job working in for an elected official, I was making $7,000 annually. And so I was having to work a lot of other jobs in order to make the rent. And again, to continue to support my mother as well, who had um, been laid off. And then at that point was also battling cancer. And I remember, you know, going into that interview after having been an intern and now they wanted to offer me a paid position. And I said, what's the salary? And they said, $7,000. I thought I got it all up front. <laughs> oh, oh no. Oh no. I mean, but I'm offering that. I'm being transparent about my yeah, own yeah. lack Thank of education. You. And then I also want to say, growing up in a community that had a prevalence of, of check cashing facilities and fast food and all of these other things, not things that really our long-term currency or support our public health or really build our our wealth in any way, I didn't have that education. And so even after I was working for elected officials, I still didn't have a bank account. I was going to the check cashing facility, if you can believe this, and cashing my check there. I mean, a fair amount of it withdrawn. Thank you for sharing that. Again, my point around you know, bringing those lived experiences. Now I have the honor of serving on the financial services committee. And so when I'm tackling issues like student debt, I know that walk. When I'm tackling issues like to be unbanked or underbanked, I know that walk. When I'm taking on the disproportionate burden of evictions in black households, I know that walk. It is so important. Brian Stevenson always talks about the proximity you know, to pain. And I've always said that people closest to the pain should be the closest to the power, driving and informing the policymaking. And and, and you need that government is always better served, as are the people, when you have that diversity of lived experience around the table. Mm -hmm. So yes, I know that the struggle of paying my rent with you know, 50 money orders, because every time I got some money, I put 20 down here and 40 down there and robbing Peter to pay Paul. And I know that it's not um, 
contemporary to have a landline, but even if it were, I wouldn't have one because I'm still traumatized by a ringing phone because as a child, I was adultified so early in having to avoid, navigate, deflect the various bill collectors that were calling because it didn't matter how hard my mother worked and for how long, we always owed somebody. So I know that walk, and my mother was a very prideful woman, and so she carried great shame, you know, mm. if she could not meet, make those ends meet. Yeah. But it was because she was staying afloat, not because of the system um, that was set up for her to thrive and to take care of her baby girl, but in spite of it. Yes. You know, yeah. so those are the things that I'm, I'm just carrying with me in this work every day. Um, I got two more questions for you. Okay. And your assistant, he's gonna, he's gonna get mad at me if I, and I don't want to be on his bad side either. <laughs> so of course the name of this podcast is Unbossed and you mentioned the inspiration behind this podcast a little earlier. You dropped her name, Shirley Chisholm. And, um, I do like to ask everyone that comes on to tell me what does the word unbossed truly mean to you? And also Tell me about a woman who is unbossed to you. Um, and you did mention your mom and Shirley a little earlier. So I feel like those are two women that we know had, have had a main just, you know, inspiration in your life. But is there another woman in the mix that you want to kind of give a shout out to? You know, I, it's hard because I think there are so many iconic women that I could refer to and, and, and reference in that way. Colleagues. You yeah. know, who immediately come to mind, the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus, Karen Bass, yes. um, Barbara Lee uh, out, of, out of California, my big sister. I consider her to be OG squad. You know, when I you know think of the, the fortitude um, that it took to be the, the lone person to vote against the war, you know, she has taken stances like that time and time again. That's what I think it means to be unbossed. Um, it's uh, it's a strength of conviction. It's truth telling. It's leading without asking permission. Mm. It's taking up space. It's creating space. Um, all the things that, that Shirley Chisholm did and, and certainly um, that I seek to do as well. But that's why that commitment to your radical joy and healing is so important because it is hard to be unbossed when you're not free. Mm. And that mm. healing is Amen really critical. Yeah, I mean, how can we be committed to the liberation of others if we're still hostage to things, you know? And so, and, I, and I'll just say as a survivor, that's been, you know, a huge part of the internal work that I've had, um, that I've had to do. I have to remind myself of, um, what was it that said, um, your crown has already been bought and paid for. All you have to do is put it on. You know, mm. I, I think about that a lot. And so whenever I find myself getting down, I'm like, I will not dishonor them. And I don't just mean those more iconic voices that we know, like a Fannie Lou Hamer, yeah. um, you know, and all the women that we've already made. I'm talking about the Black women who have been the prayer warriors, who vaseline a knee and an elbow, <laughs> who, who packed a brown bag lunch, who told you not to let the screen door slam, who made <laughs> birth every day, told you to do something about those black knees, you yes. know, these black women. Um, we have been the table shakers. We have been the truth tellers. We have been the preservers of our democracy. And so I, I hope 
every day that I'm honoring that tradition because there are these iconic women we know, but there are many who are nameless and faceless. People were so stunned by the movie Selma because they didn't know about Diane Nash. They didn't know the role. I always get frustrated when Dr. King gets all the play and people don't recognize what Coretta did. That's right. You know, we can come and talk about that some other time, but, you know, but the point is there are those that are known who have not been honored and gotten their their due. And there are many more that are unknown, but their impact in the movement was no less important. You know, they were community builders. Um, They're our founding uh, mothers for democracy and for this movement. And every day I hope that I'm honoring their tradition and their legacy. Thank you for that. And also, thank you for the work that you do. I know those, what, 16, 17 hour days are not easy. <laughs> and you know, we all got that going on. You know, we do. You, I just, I, I, especially with this Zoom life. Listen, you know, and I don't know who thought that meant there was going to be less. I, <laughs> I'm trying to tell you because I can't, I'm not going to get into detail, but I've had to set some boundaries. Um, yes, exactly. <laughs> but, exactly. and I am going to say this thank you. You're so humble. Thank you. But I praise everyone who comes on to this podcast because. I stand for every guest and I think it's important to, you know, for you to know uh, just how impactful your work is and that, you know, that inspiration is contagious. So thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, thank and, you. and also I'm just going to put it out there now. I would yeah. love to have you on in the future. Yeah. And I just want to pick your brain about your reading list because I know you got a sound okay, reading list. Just I don't want to save it. I don't want to start teasing stuff like that, okay? Yes, so, yes. I can we, hear it. Yeah. I can but, hear it. But, but, but I look forward to that. <laughs> thank you. Right. Um, I can't thank you enough and good luck with everything. Me? Let me tell you, <laughs> I feel so legitimized in this moment. I mean, this is essence, y'all. I mean, this, you know. This is the Black woman Bible, okay? <laughs> So, Thank you. you know, I feel so seen. I feel so humbled by this. I mean, I remember just, you know, waiting, you know, every month in the mailbox for Essence to come and just <laughs> what that felt like to see myself reflected in those pages. So Thank yes. you for honoring, you know, that incredible tradition and for yes. letting me uh, be a part of this, um, this unique platform today. Thank you. I appreciate it. Special thanks to Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, and please don't forget to vote. Be sure to listen, download, or subscribe to more episodes of Unbossed. You can find Unbossed on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Apple listeners, please be sure to leave me a review and let me know what you think. Be kind, but be critical. That's okay, too. Don't forget to hit me up on social at Marquita underscore Harris underscore. Be sure to use the hashtag Unbossed Podcast. I appreciate you. Thanks, guys.